All I know is because of the way this offense has played and, and the way they've executed, if they close it off with a win in, in this national championship, I'll be 80, year olds, 80 years old somewhere sitting, hopefully fishing somewhere, <laughs> and I'll be someone will ask me, what's the best team you saw? And maybe it's because it's right now. I mean, I, I think back to Matt Leinert in USC. I yeah. think of Vince Young. Uh, Tim Tebow had some teams. Most recently, you know, Tua had a great team a few years ago. There have been great teams, but this team, and I, I think it's because of the offense. You know, the defense had to find its way late in the year, but this offense, and if they go out and put an exclamation point with a 42-point effort, I think people, whether you're an LSU fan or just a college football fan, yeah. I think you'll, you'll be, look back at 2019 as one of the great runs that we've ever witnessed. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Hey Fighting Podcast, the official podcast of LSU football. As always, I'm Cody Worsham, digital media reporter for LSU Athletics, and very excited about today's show. Got to sit down with two legends, two icons of the broadcasting industry, Kirk Herbstreet, to talk a little football, a little X's and O's, and some on-field stuff with LSU Clemson. And then right after that, sat down with Tom Rinaldi to talk storylines and storytelling and I'll get a little off football for a second, but get back on football and talk about Coach O and this team and Clyde edwards Elair and some stories that he's got an eye on going into the championship game. So excited about this episode, much less of of this, of, of me talking into a microphone, much more of me listening to people who actually know what they're talking about uh, talking to a microphone. So really excited about those conversations, and uh, I'm just going to go ahead and get straight to them. Before we do a little housekeeping, please, if you haven't yet, give us a rating, give us a subscription, give us a review, send it to a friend, email, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. Uh, anything you can do helps get all the listens. If you missed the last episode, it was uh, it was a lot of me talking into a microphone, but it was uh, kind of an in-depth X's and O's dive on uh, LSU Oklahoma and Clemson Ohio State and what I learned from those games and how that might apply into the championship game. Uh one last final note, I hope to have another episode before the LSU-Clemson game, working to uh, to get Jacob Hester on to do our routine, which has been to preview these games right before. So hoping to do that Saturday, and then hoping to have one more episode as well. Trying to give you all the Hayfine podcast that you can handle this week. It's a big week, trying to take advantage of that, and trying to keep you engaged and entertained and informed and uh, listening. So I thank you so much for all the listening you've done so far. All the feedback has been wonderful. All the messages you send on Facebook and Twitter, even the ones that I don't respond to, uh, I greatly appreciate. They uh, they keep me going and uh, they keep me excited. So without further ado, let's go ahead and uh, we'll start with Kirk Herbstreet and then we'll throw to Tom Rinaldi. Uh, can't thank those guys enough for sitting down with me. Great conversations, a little more football with Kirk, a little more storytelling and narrative with Tom, but uh, I think it's kind of two sides of the same coin. And uh, two different looks at this game, which is really exciting. So, without further ado, here are Kirk Herbstreet and Tom Rinaldi. All right, it's my pleasure to be joined by ESPN college football analyst Kirk Herbstreet. Uh, Kirk, you just wrapped up a long conversation with Joe Burrow, um, but a really insightful one. Just, I was kind of there as a fly on the wall. It was really fun Wasn't to watch cool? you guys talk football. And kind of during one of the breaks, you were just talking about his his football IQ and yeah. like where he is 
mentally. So I want to start the interview there. Let's start with Joe Burrow um, because mm-hmm. I want I want to get your insight on the game and sure. LSU Clemson. But since you just did something with Joe, yeah, I want to talk about him. Yesterday you were on a conference call. I think you talked about he's maybe the best quarterback you've seen at this level executing in 30 years. Now that you've talked to him, what did you learn from that conversation with him just now? Well, you were in there. You 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 probably heard some of the same stuff that that I was hearing as far as and I I I love this game and I I'm one of these nerds that when everybody's at their job, I'm watching film. You know, I just love it. I, I I'm a quarterback myself, so I still as an analyst study film and and love that aspect of it. And I love studying quarterbacks. And I've never sat down with a guy who's more insightful and more prepared um, for a defense and what he's facing every week and more just in tune. It's He's almost like, like if, let's just put it this way. If he were on that show with John Gruden back in the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. NFL Gruden, matchup. Yeah, well, oh, no, or Gruden's, Gruden, Gruden's camp. Gruden's thing. camp yeah, when yeah, he'd yeah. have a quarterback in. Yeah. And most of these college quarterbacks, I'm not talking about Andrew Luck as – Indianapolis Colts I'm talking about Andrew Luck coming out of Stanford yeah. or you name it Peyton Manning and they sit down with with a guy that's a proven head coach like like John Gruden that, and John Gruden's firing out questions what do you happens here cover three what happens here safety comes down what are you doing with this what, what about the protection they're they're showing Mike Dog blitz what and there's nothing you can ask Joe Burrow he's not going to have an answer yeah and it's it just it's just not common and the reason that's important is he's running an NFL system and it allows him to execute at a, at a speed and a level of consistency that just we, I personally studying this game, never have seen. So I, I just, I love it. I'm appreciative of it. And I love sitting down talking to him and, and hearing more about his thoughts about protections and blitzes yeah. and all the stuff that kind of goes into it. You were there for the the Texas game, and that was kind of the introduction yeah. nationally. We had glimpses of it here, like you know, I, I was fortunate enough to see some fall scrimmages, and I was like, okay, I think this yeah. offense might be a little different. But you, <laughs> right. it's hard to balance like how good is the defense versus how good is the offense, that sort of thing. But you were there for the Texas game, and I remember after that game, you came out and you're like, look, everyone, pay attention to LSU. Yep. Did you foresee it getting to this level where? I mean, we we knew that night. Okay, they're going to be something different on offense. It's not going to be I formation, power. You know, hand it off, toss dive on the first play of every game. But did you foresee this level where he just won the Heisman by the Land widest slide. margin in, yeah. in history? I mean, did you see this offense getting to this level? What I saw when I left that stadium that night, and I told a lot of my friends, was when's that Alabama game? Was it November whatever seventh or whatever yeah. November November ninth? Him and Tua. That now this was early September yeah him and Tua like can we get there now like that, that's what that's what I remember <laughs> yeah. thinking because I thought this is different man this is not LSU this is not defense and ball control and eye formation this is a totally different thing and like you said third and 17 almost any offense let alone LSU is running the ball making Texas use timeouts that was the thing that left an impression on me was their kind of their the, the approach from Coach O all the way down, yeah. like, we're here to win. Yeah. And they did it against Florida late in the game. They're, they're here to win. They threw a touchdown late to, to Clyde. I think it was Clyde Edwards-Alaire caught one. Jamar, maybe Jamar, Jamar, Jamar Chase on a, yeah. on a wheel. Um, so it just made me feel early in the year that this was possible. Now, I didn't know Tua would get hurt. Yeah. I th- but I thought it would be a Tua-Alabama-LSU, who wins that game, yeah. probably ends up going to the national title. And probably ends up winning the Heisman Trophy. I, I I felt that confident early in the year after the Texas game. So one of the things that y'all just did was watch film, and one of the plays you watched was a touchdown against Oklahoma with Thad Moss. Mm-hmm. 
goes up the seam. And it was funny because Joe Joe broke down that play really well. He talked about how much they worked on it and stuff. You could tell it meant a lot to him. And he said that was my favorite play of the year. <laughs> yeah. Think about all the great plays he yeah, had. Yeah, for sure. Boy, he, he got real excited about that one, didn't he? For sure. And so just by coincidence, three or four days ago, I was talking to Thad, asked him about the same play. And he gave me one of the best just football answers ever, just what his read was, you know, how he knew when that defensive end hit him, he had to get vertical, all that kind of stuff. You've produced a lot this year at the catches and the yards. When you caught that, that ball in the last game and you see open field in front of you, what, what's going through your mind when to get in the end zone? Well, it was the same play that we ran Ole Miss that I fumbled on. Uh, <clears throat> so, when I, so when I ran the route, uh, I think we called, it a, we called it previously in the – in the game, but instead of having me attached, they detached me so I could get a cleaner release. Um, so when I caught the ball, so first off, it was get, get a release on the DN, just keep my feet, I almost fell, keep my feet. When I caught the ball, I was worried about the corner. I didn't want to, I didn't want the corner to hit me once I caught the ball, um, just trying to get vertical and go. And once I realized that the corner came down to Jamar and that safety was rotating to the, he was opening up to Jet side, which Jets had four touchdowns. So uh, once I caught it, it was like, man, this is the most open I've been all year just to score. Or get as many yards as I can. And as I was watching you and Joe talk, it made me realize, like, this isn't just an offense with a, a genius at quarterback. They're smart guys all over the football field. How much can that, with a Thad having that intelligence, with the receivers able to make the reads, how much can that unlock the offense? How much is that a, a reason why LSU's offense has expanded where it is? It's everything. And I think you bring up a great point. The fact you're talking to Thad about it, and he's breaking it down in the same manner of depth that the quarterback is. Yeah. Like, I think all of us as fans, sometimes we watch and we see touchdowns and we think the quarterback threw a nice pass, 60-yard yeah. touchdown. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I don't, unless you are privy to what you and I are and, and you get a chance to hear these guys talk, it's like sitting, and I was kidding about, like sitting in a math class and, and there's a professor at the board mm -hmm. and he's not teaching arithmetic, he's teaching calculus. Yeah. It really is yeah. at that level of depth and knowledge of, well, the... I noticed that the, the the Sam linebacker he was he was leaning a little bit to the outside pre snap and I saw the safety you know all these things are happening as you just see Joe routinely looking you know calling the cadence out he's recognizing the safety's leaning here the corners over here oh look at the Mike linebacker all these things are indicators for him the of what he and Thad and Jamar and Justin and Clyde and all these guys what they're seeing is eventually going to tell them because they all have to be on the same page yeah. because you adjust your route based on the coverage that they're in. And so all these things happen in the, in the blink of an eye. And they for LSU, they always seem to be on the same page, seeing the same thing. So that is Steve Insminger, it's Joe Brady, it's Joe Burrow, and it's the receivers and the tight ends and running backs, everybody buying in to this system which allows them to execute at a level that I don't think we've ever seen in college football. I'm going to ask you a, a question that's not a fair question. It's a question that 14 defensive coordinators haven't been able to answer yet. How do you stop this LSU offense? Is there What would you do? Like, If you're a defensive coordinator, would you take the Auburn approach and, and throw something different out there? Would you stick with what you do best and, and try to limit Steele, them? The, the, I talked to him last night. Kevin Steele, the defense coordinator from Auburn, said, all I know is you better change up your calls on every play. He goes – in baseball, there's a batter, and you better throw him fastball, curveball, same at bat. Fastball, curveball, knuckleball, hmm. slider, changeup. He goes, if you go fastball, slider, fastball, you're dead. Yeah. Like If Joe and those receivers know what you're in, it's over. Yeah. And so think about that as a defensive coordinator. You know that, That's really hard to do. And so 
you got to respect Brent Venables. He's one of the top defensive coaches in the country. He's had 15 days to get ready. He's going to have a plethora of things that he's not shown on film because he knows for 15 days Joe Brady, Steve Insminger, Joe Burrow are studying every move that he's made. So he's got to come in with a completely different look. And if he does what he's always done all year, it'll be like shooting fish in a barrel. And so that's why I think what, what do you do? you got to dial up pressure. You, you can't play man-to-man unless you have confidence that your guys can stay and stay with those receivers. Yeah. Because if you don't get home, you're going to give up big touchdowns. So I, I think you'll see a mixed bag. All I know is you better disguise and you better change it up. Otherwise, Joe's going to pick you apart. So the flip side of that Texas game was LSU's defense did mm-hmm. not look very good in that game. And they've, they've come a long way since then. Um, the last three games, I've kind of crunched the numbers. Passer efficiency defense, number one in the country, would be if you extrapolated for the rest yep. of the season. Uh, rush defense, top three in the country, extrapolated to the rest of the season. Small sample size, but yep. we've seen against good teams, Oklahoma, Georgia, uh, Texas A&M, good football sure. teams, this this defense has played well. Where have you seen them change? Where have they improved from that Texas game where they, they couldn't get a stop in the second half to the last three games where they're they're playing really, really well? I think they're more aggressive at the line of scrimmage. You know, I, I think early in the year, if you go back and watch them, they had some injuries. We were talking before yep. we came on the air, a guy like Todd Harris that they lose, and it affected their ability to cover it in the slot. And I think, you know, they were fine at corner um, because he had Fulton on one side and Stingley on the other. But I think where teams really were able to attack them was in the middle. And I think they're still trying to figure out linebacker. They put Grant, who was banged up, in a position to have to cover. And he's better at blitzing and playing center field. So I think now because of the the development of some of the other guys like Clot and uh, Maurice Hampton, it's allowed them to free up some of these players. And I think they're healthy. So the, schematically, I think they're attacking more. Um, Chase on is able to get up and get into the backfield, get some one-on-one opportunities in pass pro, which he didn't have. He was sometimes dropping in coverage. Yeah. Now he's in, back into attack mode and getting after the quarterback. I think the other thing is, I think that this defense got a little lazy with a new offense that was scoring 40 or 50 a game. Yeah. I think they lost their edge. And I think it, it took the performance against Ole Miss. If you go back and remember, they played Ole Miss, didn't go well. The quarterback Plumlee was running all over the place. Yeah. They gave up a lot of big plays, and the committee the next week came out and said, we're flipping Ohio State over to one. LSU's just not a complete team. Yep. And I think talking to Dave Aranda, he went into the meeting rooms, and he's like, fellas, we're not living up to our standard. LSU's known for defense. We, we're relying on this offense. Now, they, you know, what's wrong with you guys? Kind of really challenged them. And I think they really bought into – we're not going to rely on Joe in this offense every week. Let, let's let's go do our part. So I think it's a kind of a perfect storm of different scheme, healthy, and a different confidence and mindset has allowed them to play better. I want to I want to pivot to Clemson. Um, you, you called the the Clemson Ohio State game. I went back and rewatched it because obviously I was covering the LSU game yeah. and then uh, enjoying myself, quote unquote, yeah, after yeah. after the win. Um, but I went back and rewatched it, and like midway through the second quarter, it's sixteen nothing, and I know the result of the game. I know that Clemson has won this football game, but You're I'm sitting here how? watching it. How did they win this game? There's no way they won it, but yet they did. So what happened in your mind in that game that Clemson was able to so, to stay close? Ohio and, State, to their credit, came out. This is the defending champ, undefeated. Trevor Lawrence never lost a game. A lot of buildup and hype about the game. Clemson has a point to prove after dropping to three, undefeated, and they're frustrated. But Ohio State took the fight to them, if you watch the game. They went tempo offense. They were aggressive. They were hitting them with big plays. Defense was jamming the receivers and getting uh, Trevor Lawrence in kind of an uncomfortable position. They couldn't throw the ball, and it was boom, boom. And Ohio State, 
three different times I got into the red zone. They were ready to go with Mike Tyson first round knockout. Yep. And three different times they'd settle for field goals. So there was a little bit of a hmm, shit feels like it's twenty eight nothing, but it's sixteen to nothing. Yep. And then there was a third and five and Ohio State got called for the targeting, which we can argue all day about targeting. It was the right call because Sean Wade, who lowered his head, crown of his helmet, he hit uh, Trevor on yeah. third and five. It was an incompletion, and they called that. So it was an automatic first down, led to eventually a touchdown for Clemson. So it was like that, to me, was a turning point, if you watch the game, mm-hmm. in the game that went from Ohio State being up 28 nothing early to it's 16-7. How did this happen? Yep. I just felt it, it changed. Uh, the momentum of the game, and then they got another score where, where Trevor got out on a long quarterback run, and they had to change their game plan within the game. They couldn't throw the ball, couldn't run Travis Etienne, so they started running, of all people, the big fella, yeah. quarterback, yeah. and it worked. Yeah. And so um, I think Ohio State outplayed them. I think in a lot of t- cases they outcoached them, and you got to give Clemson one thing, you got to give them credit, is the heart of a champion. Kind of got backed into a corner, didn't give up, kept fighting, and at the end of the game, they, they found a way to win it. Looking at Trevor, because I think a lot of people are going to focus on the quarterbacks in this game because it's probably the number one pick in the draft the next two seasons. Yeah. Where are the spots that he can try to attack LSU's defense? What, what are the things that he does um, well that can get after LSU? You know, I, I think, first of all, I think if I'm Dabo and Jeff Scott, the receiver coach, I'm walking into that receiver room and really challenging my guys because they, they, they got beat up last yeah. week. Ohio State, I think, went into the game thinking – we're not in the ACC. We got confidence in our defensive backs. They have NFL defensive backs. Yep. We're going to jam them at the line. We're, they're big, tall receivers, uh, and, and they're just going to get up into, his, into their faces and try to disrupt them, and it worked. And so I think Clemson really has been embarrassed by that. I heard Amari Rogers, their slot receiver, come out and say, man, we no excuse. Like We, we got beat up. We got to come out swinging. So I think – you got you got to get your receivers on track and you got to make some plays on the perimeter. You got to win against yeah. two really good corners and Fulton and Stingley. And the other thing is they, they've got to find ways to make the safeties from LSU have to respect the passing game. So then you can eventually the strength of their team is running Travis Etienne, yeah. who's a Louisiana guy. Yep. And if they can't get him on track, it, it makes for a very, very long day for their offense. So I think I think ETN will be the key to, to their attack because it, when he gets going, it tends to set up every other aspect of their offense. Two more for you. Um, just a quick one here. Do you think it's more likely this game is in the 40s, both teams are in the 40s, or in the 20s? I would my, – my instincts, as you asked that, say the 40s because I have respect for both quarterbacks and yeah. both offenses. And I would throw a caveat in – 15 days of prep for Dave Aranda, who's a great defensive mind. Yep. 15 days for, for Brent Venables, who's a great defensive mind. I, I have a great deal of confidence for LSU's offense because I haven't seen a defense stop him. You know, I, as much as I respect Brent Venables, it, I, I have to see it to believe it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, I've watched them every week. Nobody can stop them. No. They play in a pretty tough conference in the SEC with great defenses. Nobody can stop them. The real question is, can Clemson get back? It's, like, it's almost like they're stuck in second gear in that Ohio State game. Yeah. Can they get back into third, fourth, and fifth gear to try to stay up with LSU? That's the one question I have in this game is, can, can Clemson's offense score with Joe? Because I think Joe's going to score. Yeah, so my last one for you, and this is this is a tough one too, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but if you look at it from a historical perspective, what LSU's done this season, if they beat Clemson, 
It'll be their seventh top ten win. They'll have uh, the Heisman winner by a historic margin, Bolitnikov, Thorpe. Um, they'll have navigated a very tough schedule. They'll have knocked off the defending champions 29-0 and the last two seasons. Where would that rank, that resume rank, historically among the great college football teams going back to the, you know, the greatest teams of all time? Where would can you, do you have a sense of where that would be? All I know is because of the way this offense has played, and and the way they've executed, if they close it off with a win in in this national championship, I'll be eighty year olds, eighty years old somewhere, sitting hopefully fishing somewhere, <laughs> and I'll be someone will ask me what's the best team you saw, and. Maybe it's because it's right now. I mean, I, I think back to Matt Leinart in USC. I yeah. think of Vince Young. Uh, Tim Tebow had some teams. Most recently, you know, Tua had a great team a few years ago. There have been great teams. But this team, and I, I think it's because of the offense. You know, the defense had to find its way late in the year. But this offense, and if they go out and put an exclamation point with a 42-point effort – I think people, whether you're an LSU fan or just a college football fan, yeah. I think you'll you'll be, look back at 2019 as one of the great runs that we've ever witnessed. Yep. Hopefully they can uh, they can wrap it up. Yeah, and, uh, and what a great town, New Orleans. Yeah, what a great town. We were in Santa Clara last year. You imagine LSU fans because I did it. <laughs> Santa, what? So where, where are we? Where, where's the game? I mean, it's just. It's like the football god said to LSU fans, you know what, you guys have been through a lot lately. Yeah. Here's what we're going to do for you. Yeah. Atlanta for the SEC championship, Atlanta for the semifinal, and just for fun, we're going we're gonna to close it off for three days over in New Orleans for the national title. I, I, I don't know. Does it get much better if you're an LSU fan? Yeah, I think uh, as the game approaches, my prep for the game will be to get <laughs> as much work done as I can now oh, so yeah. that as soon as it's over, um, usually I do a podcast right after the game. As soon well, as do it's it over. from Bourbon Street. Okay, that, now now we're talking. See, with saying? a hurricane in one hand, the microphone in the I'll other. I'll be down think, there. We'll do a post-game show. Perfect, <laughs> perfect. Kirk, appreciate your time. Thank yeah, you so much. All right, it's my pleasure to be joined by Tom Rinaldi of ESPN, which is uh, really cool for me because I'm a, a big fan of all your stuff, Tom. Um, so, and thank you so much for your time. Uh, I know you're busy. First, let's start with why you're here because I know you're embedded with LSU this week um, for the national championship game, and you were just interviewing some of the guys out there for Sound of the Game, right? Um, and Clyde Edwards, you there, was one of the guys that, that you talked to, and you came out of that interview and you said something to Brandon Barrio, uh, our sports information director for football, that I think bears repeating on this podcast, if you don't mind sharing it. But just tell me your takeaway from that conversation with Clyde. I think this is the third time I've had the opportunity to speak with Clyde. But walking out, and I could have said it the other times as well, he is among the 10 most thoughtful football players I've interviewed in my career. And that perspective is informed by a life where he's had more to experience in his first couple of decades than a lot of people have in their entire lifetimes. And what he's done with those experiences manifests in a great depth and a great ability to be reflective and expressive. And he just is a remarkable person to speak with. I don't want to spoil anything that you're going to be using, but what were some of the things that he talked about that really caught your storyteller's ear just a a simple question like what would it mean to win and to hear him describe what he thinks it would mean to this city this state to its people to the joy that it would bring one of the expressions he used was it's remarkable to think 
that an egg-shaped ball could change so much, but it does. And I, I again, I think that's a remarkable thought to express. He also was very powerful talking about Coach E and the tragedy that's mm-hmm. happened in the last week and a half and how the brotherhood of the team, the loving culture of the team, he hoped and believed was helping the Ensminger family through uh, the depths of this loss. So one of the things that, that people associate with you is your ability to tell these these emotional stories. That obviously fits into that category. Um, I don't know if that's something that you anticipated your the direction you anticipated your career going, being the, the guy known for kind of going into those stories. What about those kinds of stories, the quote-unquote tearjerker stories or the emotional stories or the, the stories that take you outside of the field appeals to you? So I uh, two things. I, I don't know that it was certainly never anything that I <laughs> did by design yeah. or intended to have happen. Uh, it just seemed that, and this is something I say from time to time, that I do many other kinds of stories yeah, as well. Do. I do some lighter-hearted <laughs> stories. I've done stories where I'm the butt of the joke. I've done stories that are... Uh, simpler in their approach that are limited just to what's happening in the field of competition. But the stories that people remember most often are ones which have an emotional resonance. And that has far less to do with me or the way I tell them than the elements of the stories themselves. Because perhaps because of the relatability of that, each of us, not all of us is going to be able to run and jump and perform and, and pull off the athletic feats that these incredible athletes do. We all will face trial and test and challenge. We'll all deal with failure and hopefully persist to victory. And perhaps in those themes, we find connection and something universal. So one of my, my favorite moments from you, I'm a, I'm a big tennis guy. I, I grew up, literally grew up on a street called Wimbledon. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. So Wimbledon's a big deal in my household. Um, it's, it's right down the road here in Baton Rouge. Um, Are the other streets that have yeah, tennis so there's, names as well? there's Don Budge. There's Rod Laver. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the other streets. I lived on Wimbledon, so that was the – the hook, John Newcomb. It's all older, older school. I think it was probably built in the '80s. So, you know, sure. growing up, we were big Pete Sampras fans, and so I was always lobbying my mom, like, "Who do we need to talk to to get like a Pete Sampras road in here?" And I'm, you could add Roger Federer to that list too. But one of my favorite moments from you is, and you mentioned this being the the butt of the joke or kind of being in on it, was your Nick Kyrgios <laughs> moment. Where, for those who don't know, Nick Kyrgios tweeted. I don't know what tournament this was at, but he tweeted at one the U.S. Morning, Open. The U.S. Open. He tweeted one morning, "Who the hell is Tom Rinaldi? Why is he talking about tennis?" And then was it hours later? Was it the same day where he's walking out to prepare for his match, and there's Tom Rinaldi <laughs> ready to greet him? It for was his the middle, middle weekend of this past U.S. Open, and Kyrgios, who is a uh, really volatile, spectacular talent, yeah. as you know, yeah. if, if you're not a tennis fan, he's absolutely worth watching. He's a popcorn match creator for sure you don't know what he's going to do he's (laughs) among the most electric talents but he's also incredibly unpredictable yes and he sent that tweet out i'm not on any social media so it was a producer who told me hey i'm sorry about the curios tweet and i said what are you talking about and he said well nick curios said you know who the hell is tom rinaldi and why is he commentating on a tennis match when he has no idea what the hell's going on yeah i was calling a rafa match and Little did he know, little did I know, I knew this part. 
eye on the schedule from the previous night was slated to do the pre-match interview for Kyrgios' <laughs> nighttime match on Arthur Ashe. So Kyrgios was, was playing uh, Andre Rublev, who came out first. I did uh, ask Rublev a couple of questions. He comes out, and then Kyrgios comes walking down the hall, and I said to him, Nick, Tom Rinaldi with the SPN. And he was like, oh, mate, oh, no. And I said, he said, that's hilarious. And I said, why is it hilarious, Nick? You gave me a shout-out earlier in the day. Let people know. And he handled it beautifully. Yeah, he did. Uh, he laughed, and uh, and he was willing to play along with it. And I was I was surprised at the number of people who reacted to that moment. Yeah. Maybe because of something simple that you have to be able to laugh at yourself and how often in the age of social media do you troll somebody or say something negative and then have to look held accountable right in the (laughs) eye just a couple of hours later so and again i give uh, kudos to curios because i thought he handled it very well well speaking of relatable i think we've all been trolled online and i think we've all probably trolled a little bit too and so you never really see the confrontation, right? And I think what, what was in, uh, endearing about that moment from both of your perspectives was you had a great sense of humor about it, and then he had a great sense of humor about it. He didn't, you know, he could have shunned, I don't know what he could have done otherwise, I don't know if he could have shunned you or what, but it was just, it was a, a great moment. Um, but I think what made it great also was, I don't know if you planned to, to greet him with that, but the, the line that you just said, that that's hilarious line, you couldn't have planned that because you wouldn't have, or what's hilarious about it, you couldn't have planned that because you wouldn't have known he was going to say that. How much of what you do as a storyteller, as an interviewer, do you have to really listen and, and be able to to adapt to the situation? And Because that would have, I would have been intimidated to know that, oh gosh, I've got Nick Curios now, he just called me out on Twitter, like I don't know how I'm going to handle this, but you seem to, to be ready for it as much as you could be. Why would that have been intimidating? You know, I think it's to me, it's the the idea. I'm not a confrontational person, so facing very few of us are. Yeah, I'd have been afraid that there would be an on camera confrontation, and and how I would have handled it, how I would have looked, how he would have handled it. It would have just, I don't know, it would have been a little intimidating for me. I think it's taken me way too long, and this is an indictment. I, I don't know how else to say it. It's taken me way too long to, and it came at the the painful price of botching interviews. And I still do this. I still commit this one of the most basic sins. I don't listen well enough. And I become a little bit more concerned with the next question rather than the present answer. And so in listening to the present answer, not all the time, but at times there's something valuable there which should trigger a follow-up. And something as simple as, you know, that's hilarious. Why is it hilarious that then gives him an on-ramp to explore it or go farther in the same note or yeah. vein? Uh, again, that's something that is, I'm still a work as we all are in, in progress. But I've, I've tried, I've been conscious of listening and not being as concerned with the sequential follow-up according to the list yeah. versus... <laughs> the follow-up according yeah. to what's actually being said. For sure. I mean, you can see I've got my list of questions here that I've already deviated from. Um, I'm curious because you, you mentioned listening, and I think it's a, a super imp- – and we are going to talk football in, in a second, by the way. We are going to talk LSU Clemson, which I know people listening want to hear. But I, I, I want to talk to you about this because this is something I, th- I feel like you're really strong at. But the ability to listen is is clearly a talent, but it's also what I've learned, especially on this job, 
it can be really tiring. Like I remember we, we did the That's Joe series where we went up to Athens Fantastic. and we talked to Thank you. Thank you. Fantastic. Um and <clears throat> we went up there and we talked literally from eight AM to nine PM we talked to thirteen people probably. And by the end of the day, like I was just I was exhausted. Like I was just tired because sitting there paying attention, engaging uh, it takes a toll. It takes a mental toll. It takes a physical toll. I was tired from the positions I was sitting in and that sort of thing. And so I'm curious as someone who does that literally every week. I mean, it seems like every week you have something coming out, whether it's on game day, whether it's major time for tennis. How have you cultivated that skill? How do you maintain the energy to travel as much as you do and and tell these stories, which some people think, oh, you know, it's it's a dream job, which it is, of course, and we, we love doing it. But there's, there's sacrifices and there's um, there's certainly a – that there's a, a tiring element to it. There's a, a toll that it takes personally. How do you kind of cope with that? How have you developed the ability to, to listen to people for so long and, and engage and then turn that into a story? That's a great sign that you would be worn out by, and it seems so counterintuitive, right? I'm only sitting in a chair. How on <laughs> earth could that be tiring? There were people breaking rocks in the hot sun and sure. framing houses and laying tar down yeah. and, and writing code, et cetera. How could it be tiring to simply sit and listen? But attention, attentiveness is engagement. Engagement is purposeful. Purposeful comes from effort. Effort is tiring. And especially if you're really listening to what someone has to say and thinking through where is that leading me? Where is the conversation going to go from the previous point that's been made? That can be tiring. That's number one. Yeah. Number two, it is a lottery-winning job. No, no. I won the lottery. And I'm able to work in different sports and have different roles. I'm able to balance the feature world and tell stories with the urgency and immediacy of sideline reporting, with play-by-play and tennis, with the interviews I'm able to do both live and for features. It's mm-hmm. it, I just won the lottery. Yeah, The sacrifice really comes at home, and I married, I've used this line many times, my wife Diane is three seats from Jesus. And <laughs> there are times this late in the season where she might be only two seats away. <laughs> so, uh, and our kids as well are wonderful. So they sacrifice a lot uh, so that I'm able to cash the lottery ticket yeah. season after season. Yeah, I got to thank my wife too because you're talking about developing listening skills. My wife is a social worker, so she's a professional listener. And uh, she's given me a few very valuable tips, uh, both professionally and personally. So a uh, big thanks to her. Let's pivot to, to football because I know people want to hear about it. And we were joking about your ability to elicit emotion from people um, in, your, in the stories that you do. One of the people that you did elicit emotion from this year was Ed Orgeron, um, who is an emotional guy, but we don't see that side of him often. And I'm talking about when you had your sit down with him. He talked about that day at USC, which um, the day that he found out he wasn't getting the the job at USC. What, what are the layers to Ed Orgeron? What are the layers that you've seen from him um, and, and how that's helped him this year to go from where he was three years ago, where he gets hired and across the country, people are mocking it or people are critical of it. And to now where he's maybe the best coach in college football and the best team in college football. How has that kind of emotional foundation gotten him to where he is? I think one of the, one of the deepest, most powerful tributes you can pay to Ed Ogeron is recognizing something very deceptively simple. Ed 
has changed. He's grown. He has used experiences from the past, and they have altered him and improved him. And that's personally, professionally, in almost any way. And if he were sitting here with us, he would tell you that. And the fact that he is able, in the midst of a dream season, think about this, at the peak of his professional life, to still open his heart and be vulnerable enough to pause and have his face reflect the hurt Mm -hmm. of his players looking to him to know, why are you leaving us? Why isn't this job yours when he knows it's not his call? The additional part of that, to know that there's a judgment being made about me and I can't control that judgment. Yeah. I think I did everything I needed to do to secure this job, to earn it beyond the interim label. And I didn't get it. And how he's grown from Ole Miss to SC to the time when he stepped away to what he's gone through in the cauldron of Kelly's health problems, yeah. his wife, to the success his sons have in playing football collegiately, all of that. I think Ed's evolution can't be undervalued or understated or undersold. I also think it takes a very smart man to hire smart people around him and listen. And a lot of people don't do that. They might hire people who are smart and still do it the same way. I do that way too often. I don't change... (laughs) often enough i find myself set in my ways and i'm inspired by people who can change because it it takes humility and it takes risk and that's what is wrought this season that's what's manifesting in the success of lsu season how much do you see in this team a reflection of coach o because you have you have guys like joe burrow who was overlooked at ohio state clyde who was overlooked coming out of high school uh, Thad Moss, a transfer. Um, you could go up and down the list. There's you a lot can. of. There, it's a good combination of elite talent, but also a lot of guys with that same kind of mentality that that Ed Orgeron has. That they were overlooked. They were overpassed. You would know this better than I would, but the program really is in his shape. Mm-hmm. It really does play with his spirit. You can't say that at, at very many programs, I, I don't think. Now, you can say, well, at the most successful programs, aren't they by design, yeah. by definition, the shape and manifestation of the head coach? Not always. And I've said this for a long time. No team plays, perhaps there are teams that play as much, but no team plays more for its coach than LSU. Yeah. None. And... I think that's because with Ed, the players recognized the authenticity of his commitment to them and the depth of his love for them. It's funny because one of the things that I do in addition to the reporting and the the writing and stuff is I help out with some of our our branding. We have branding meetings. We we talk ideas. And anytime we talk branding for LSU, I look at Coach O, and this this isn't intentional. He's not a quote-unquote brander. He's not a guy that thinks about brands. But he is LSU, and he is – Louisiana and he embodies it so much and I think that's why you know first here there was a a a fan base that bought into him pretty quickly once they 
they saw that. Not that he didn't have to overcome his doubters here too, but they, they bought into that. That's why he got the job, in my opinion, more than anything, um, in addition to all the other traits that he has. But now nationally, people have really embraced him and LSU because there is such a, a strong tie there. Do you, do you sense that? Do you think people pick up on that? I think if people didn't, anyone who saw Joe Burrow's Heisman speech yeah. <laughs> need see no more than yep. that. That's a player who managed his emotions as best he could up to the point that he addressed his head coach. That is what, in essence, caused his heart to overflow. Yeah. That he couldn't navigate that emotionally without showing the depth of what his head coach means to him. Thank you for taking a risk on me. Thank you for helping to teach me how to be a man. I mean, those are mighty sentiments to express mm-hmm. in private. Mm-hmm. To do it on the stage when you've just won the Heisman Trophy, I, I don't know that there can be a greater testament to what he means to his players in that moment. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're an interviewer. Um, Joe, is, Joe Burrow is probably as tough a nut to crack as there is in the interview game. And so for that moment to happen was, uh, I think I think you're exactly right. That was that was the perfect representation of that. We'll we'll get out on this um, as a as a storyteller, not as a reporter, but as a storyteller. As you're around LSU this week, um, and also with Clemson, what are the storylines in this game that intrigue you? I talked with Kirk about the hardcore football stuff. If that appeals to you, by all means. But what what are some of the the bigger picture stories that are standing out to you that you're looking into this week? I think there's a number of them, and they're all sensational. Right, the fact that. LSU has had this season, and win or lose, it concludes where it concludes is an obvious storyline. That you have a head coach who says repeatedly over and over, the great state of Louisiana. That might sound like some stump line or a slogan from anyone else, not from a native son who is so proud to represent his native state. That's number one. Number two, is Trevor Lawrence ever going to lose? Again, I'm a, period. Yeah, they're, they're you know, blessed Trinity. You have any idea what those no. two words mean? No, uh, they that's the school that beat him in the last <laughs> loss that he's had. Blessed Trinity. Okay, so when is he ever going to lose? That, that, that's number two. Number three, of course, is the Joe and Joe show, the revelation that's been Joe Burrow, yeah. the magic that's been Joe Brady. Um, Tragically, the, tra- the, the, the plane crash yeah. and what it has shown about one coach, one family, the in- incandescent spirit of Carly mm-hmm. and how she was, in a way, such a favored daughter of this state. Yeah. And what that's meant in the latter stages here of this season as the team tries to win a title and tries in its own way um, to show its love for one of its favorite coaches. The, and, and I could go on and on and on in the obvious disrespect for Clemson and I mean, yeah. et cetera. There's a lot of great storylines. Yeah. I've, I've said it all year, you know, when people compliment work that we've done, and we're very proud of our work. But it's let, let, let me pause on, on there and just say the work that you guys have done, the, the moments that you've captured – and then presented. It's one thing to have the access, however limited or granted, yeah. and capture a moment. It's another thing to turn it around and present it in an authentic, meaningful, moving way. 
you guys have done that time and time again in bringing your fan base closer to the core and spirit of the program in fa- in riveting ways, yeah. including the series on Joe, including the 10,000 catches, inclu- and, uh, including the visit between the boy and Ed. I mean, there's so many different aspects, to, so many stories you guys have told, which have been phenomenal. Well, thank you. That means the world to me. It's it's very humbling. And I'll tell you what I've, I've told people that have complimented us before. We're very proud of our work. We have a great team from Matt and, and Brandon and Chris and everybody. Lindsay, I feel like every time I start talking about him, I should name them all. Um, but what, what makes it easy is this team. This team makes it really easy on us because not of not just the way that they play and going undefeated, but the type of guys, the Clyde Edwards Elairs and the the Thad Mosses, the Lloyd Cushenberries, the Coach mm-hmm. O's, they're all they're also genuine. Um, and they, they not only are really good football players and coaches, but they're great stories and they're they're great at sharing with us too. So um, no doubt they've given you a lot to work with. I'm excited to see um, what you do for the, the championship game, but it's been my honor and I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Like that's we fight to hold the glory of the purple and gold. Come on, you tigers. I said fight, fight, fight. Victory for, victory for, victory for LSU. We are number, number one. Victory for 